John Delaney represented Maryland in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2013 to 2019. In 2017, he launched a bid for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Before running for Congress, he co-founded two publicly traded companies focused on making loans more readily available for small businesses. Today, he discusses the need for bipartisanship at this uniquely divisive and difficult moment in American history. Let's listen in. Hey, John, John, and welcome to welcome to the No Labels uh, uh, bi-weekly Zoomathon. Uh, we've been doing this for a while, uh, and uh, you know, I'd say we're doing about as well booking distinguished guests as any of the Sunday talk shows are, and you're certainly doing nothing to reduce our our average. Uh, for those who don't know John, just a very brief introduction because he has a really interesting bio. Uh, he began life, I think it's fair to say, as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he may be the only uh, member of Congress ever uh, to have founded uh, two companies that ended up listed on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, but it was it was clear pretty early on uh, that uh, that John had a, a yen for public service, uh, and he ended up running and for and winning a congressional seat in my home state of of Maryland, and ultimately decided to throw his hat into the ring for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, he ran one of the most energetic campaigns in recent history. If memory serves, Iowa has 99 counties, and I believe that John visited all of them more than once. Uh, he also had the guts to reduce his thoughts to writing in the form of, of a book that was published before he started his campaign. And the last thing I'd say is that, that John is someone who instinctively looks for the right answer to public problems, wherever the answers come from. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't reach only for democratic ideas or republican ideas. He is asking always the same question: What will work? Uh, work substantively and work politically. Uh, and so he is located precisely in the sweet spot that No Labels is trying to uh, trying to develop and, and push forward. So without further ado, uh, John Delaney, I think you will probably have some introductory remarks after which we'll have a Q&A period and what the State Department calls a frank and free exchange of views. Over to you, John. Well, thank you for that nice introduction. I'm sorry to break your streak of distinguished speakers here, uh, but uh, it, it was inevitable that it had to happen, I suppose. Uh, and Nancy, uh, thank you for everything and for the friendship over the years. I appreciate it, uh, it very much. Um, it's great to be with everyone. I'm, I'm a huge fan of No Labels and, and deeply admiring of all the work that you've done. And I could say when I, when I was out on the campaign trail, it was always a good moment when I encountered someone from No Labels or someone who was a supporter of the organization because you knew you were going to have a rational and clear-minded conversation. 
so again, thanks for for all the support over the years and all the engagement over the years, and and Nancy uh, in particular for the friendship. So, I do think the work that you're doing, in many ways, is more important now than it has ever been, and it's not just because of how incredibly polarized we are as a society, which unfortunately I saw firsthand uh, on the campaign trail, but it's it's more because there's never been a more important time for us to actually try to come up with solutions that are actionable and can get done. Because in my judgment, at least, what we're seeing unfold before our eyes, in addition to the tragedy of the pandemic and COVID and the the impact it's had on so many families and so many people, but we're seeing this tremendous acceleration of trends that were uh, ultimately inevitable, but we're going to play out over a period of time that would have allowed us to make adjustments, uh, you know, probably not perfectly, but at least allow us to adopt uh, to the change. But because of what's happened, just this acceleration, whether it's the digitization of the economy or changes in how we live and work and how we learn, all of these things are happening now at such a rapid rate, and, and it's my sense that that will continue, that it's gonna be a real shock to a lot of Americans. And uh, it'll be enormously positive for, for lots of Americans, obviously, because change always is, but it'll also be very negative for a lot of Americans. And there's things that we actually have to do to help manage our country through these changes, which again, as an optimist by nature, and as someone who believes that innovation is, is ultimately net positive, I think these changes will in fact put us in a better place in the future. But the transition to it, I think will be much more painful and disruptive than it would have been if they would have continued along their trajectory. So what does that really mean? That really means we have to respond. We have to prepare people for this. We have to make sure they have some ability to earn a living and support themselves in the new economy. We have to make sure their basic needs like healthcare and nutrition and housing are taken care of. And we just have so many things we need to do. And in the next administration, which obviously I'm not objective on this, I'm, I'm a big Biden supporter, the next administration is going to have an enormously difficult hand that they're dealt with. And they're going to actually have to start getting some things done. And we all know that if we just, you know, if, if the agenda is a variety of things that are questionable policy and are really bad politics, except for base politics, if that becomes the agenda, we're, we're going to be in a really tough spot because none of this stuff will get done. So the, the work that you all have worked so hard on to, to, to create a space where lawmakers can actually try to come together with the Problem Solvers Caucus and tackle some of these things, I think is never going to be more important than it is right now. And I know it's what the American people are looking for. I mean, as I traveled all around this country and Bill, I was in all 99 counties in Iowa and probably most of them twice. I, I think I did about 800 events around the country. And when I say events, I'm not counting fundraisers. I mean real events with real people in living rooms and community centers and you know, meeting them really where they are. There's still a tremendous sense of optimism in the country. And it's, it's, it's interesting, there's almost an inverse correlation, meaning the more blessed you are, the more cynical 
you know, in many ways we've become. But so many Americans who are struggling so hard and, and really having a hard time getting through the day and the week remain very optimistic. And I think they remain very optimistic because they believe fundamentally that, the, that we will make progress, but we have to do it. And the kind of agenda that no labels can help cultivate on economic policy, on healthcare policy, on fiscal policy, even on foreign policy to some extent. I think that kind of agenda, that kind of common sense, problem solving oriented agenda to use your terminology is, is, is what the country needs so desperately right now. And I'm hopeful that things will line up well for the Biden administration so that they can actually, and I think it's what he believes because if you remember early on in the Biden campaign, one of the things he was most criticized for was this notion that he that he saw a Congress that worked at various stages of his career, and he believed it can it can work again. And so I know that's kind of in his DNA, and I'm hopeful that the politics will line up right for him to be able to. To, to lead with an agenda like that. You know, a common sense agenda where the first 100 day goals, which are always ambitious, but they're rooted in some kind of pragmatic reality that can build the kind of big tent that we need to get this stuff done. And again, that's, you know, you all have been singing off that uh, sheet of music for a long time. So, you know, that, that was all I really wanted to say was how important your work is, particularly in light of what I see happening right now outside of government in the economy. And uh, hopefully we'll have the kind of political environment to make it happen. So I'd love to hear what you all have to say and answer any questions, Bill. Okay, well, we already have uh, a list of questioners lined up for you and Gene uh, Bernstein goes first. Gene? You may have already answered the question about, my question was what was your biggest takeaway from uh, being a presidential candidate? You may have answered that with what you said about the cynicism of the, the better off or the speed with which these changes are coming so quickly that people really aren't having a chance to adapt to them. But if there's something else that you took away that you haven't said, I'd be sure. curious to hear that. Yeah, the, the, the optimism, you know, I, I would meet people, Gene, you know, at events, I, I remember the one person who had a, a terribly disabled child and they were working like two jobs. They were a single parent and they literally had to commute like two hours a day to get to work. And, and you'd, you'd hear her story and you'd say, you, you just think to yourself, how do you get through the day um, dealing with what you're dealing with? And yet she was kind of like, listen, you know, I think we can work together. I think we can you know, the problems, you know, if our politicians actually just focus on the issues that matter to us, you know, I remember her saying that to me and, and, and I would have so many encounters like that. And then you come back to nothing against the inside the Beltway crowd, because I've certainly spent a lot of time there. And there's just so much cynicism and, and the focus is on issues that actually truly don't matter to the American people. I mean, you look at a lot of the stuff that gets talked about, particularly on social media, and you say, no one actually cares about any of this stuff. So, that was a big takeaway. The other big takeaway to me, which I, I think is actually now an op could be an opportunity, is how kind of hollowed out geographically such big parts of the country have been because of you know the, the forces of change. So when you look at like graphs that show 
various economic indicators of the United States and you take a step back, a lot of them, you know, many of them are positive, some of them are concerning, but it doesn't tell the story geographically about what happened. God bless you. Thank you. And uh, where you, you know, you'd go into these, these small towns and the, the structure of the town is still there, meaning the town square and, you know, the stores around the, the outs, you know, around the perimeter of the town square. And you could see the etching of the prior businesses still on, on the brick. But you look at them and half of them are vacant. And, uh, you know, the rest is, you know, a pawn shop or some different new kind of church that set up its operation. And it was just, you know, you could almost imagine what the town used to be like. You know, you go to a place, you know, like Newton Eye was a good example. Like they had, a that was the headquarters of Maytag. Every single person in that town can tell you the day Maytag left. Like they all know the day, you know, and like where I live in, you know, Bethesda, Maryland, businesses are starting and leaving every day. No one even knows it's happening. So, so the, the hollowing out was, was something that, you know, I knew about and, it, and, and, you know, had observed kind of more as someone who just thinks about economic policy. But when you actually go to these communities, you realize how profound it is and why policies that actually encourage people to invest in these communities are so important. Now, I think COVID could create a tailwind for some of this stuff, because I think there is a realization that people can live and work in, in different places. And I think there's an opportunity to at least turn a lot of these communities around. But we need some good policy to do it. Thank you. Thank you, Gene. Great. Uh, next up, and apologies for any mispronunciation of last names, uh, Stan Leopard. Well, it's Leopard. It's a lot easier than it looks. Stan? <laughs> yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Stan. Okay. Uh, it's nice to meet you, John. Thank you for taking the time for the briefing today. You mentioned in your opening remarks that there were a number of changes that you anticipated and that uh, COVID would be something that would uh, escalate those changes. What changes do you think are the most uh, important of those? Well, so I think obviously the is, and, and the term I use is accelerate, right? Because these things were kind of happening and, and but there were, there were some biases against them and adoption wasn't as quickly as it maybe should have been. But then by being forced, you know, I think about, you know, my mom who's 84 years old and never did online banking and would go to the little bank in her little small town in New Jersey. And suddenly she's like, wow, this is really easy. Um, so I think the digitization of all of the, the you know, I think um, uh, in two or three months, internet retail sales as a percentage of all retail sales doubled, right? So, you know, since the late 90s, it took, you know, 20 years for it to 15% of retail sales to be done online. And in two months, that doubled. And, you know, that would have probably taken another several years to get there. So that just pulled forward that change. And that obviously is massively disruptive to, to traditional brick and mortar retail businesses and to commercial real estate that, that leases space to those things, right? So the, there's kind of one thing, you know, and that's obviously a, a negative for a lot of people. Then if you think about medicine, you know, what's happened with telehealth, which is something we've been talking about telehealth for a long time, but a lot of let's face it, regulatory barriers put a lot of limits on these things, which were clearly stupid, right? Because they were waived, 
And now a lot of people are are doing all kinds of things. We have United Healthcare, and we just got something in the mail about how we can, you know, now do all of these things with our physicians uh, digitally, and it'll be fully reimbursed, just like an office visit. And so that'll be a pretty significant kind of acceleration and have some disruptive effect. You know, I think in terms of people being able to work remotely and use these technologies, you know, that was clearly happening and that's clearly going to accelerate. I think, you know, if you think about the cost of education and the, the burdens of, you know, two to $300,000 college degrees, oftentimes at schools that give you a degree that have no value or a major that has no value. I think we've seen how distance learning can potentially be the thing that really does finally bend the cost curve in education. So in all these things, there's positive and negatives like, like everything. But I just think there's going to be, for, for the negatives, which will be significant, you know, there's going to be a lot of disruption economically. So, you know, my view is the economy could come back from a GDP perspective and really de-link from unemployment for a material period of time. And that's something, you know, so, so then you say to yourself, okay, what do we do? Well, why don't we do a big infrastructure program? Because that's something we've needed. It has a good high return on investment. And if our problem is going to be maybe not economic growth, growth, but jobs, why don't we do something that actually creates jobs, but in a good ROI way? So I think, you know, th this acceleration thing is really a big trend that, that I'm trying to figure out how it all plays out. Thank you. Thank Great. You. Uh, the the list of questioners is getting longer, not shorter. Uh, next up, Tim Sloan. Hey, John, how are you? Hello, Tim. Good to see you. Nice Thanks for your comments you. about the digitization of banking. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, if, if we could wind the clock back and the Democratic electorate had been a little bit saner and made you the uh, nominee, or if if uh, uh, Vice President Biden is elected and he has the same moment and calls you up and says, John, come in, I need your help. What would be the, uh, the one, two, three, four uh, issues that you would tell him or you would have kind of tackled in those first hundred days? It is that you could actually get it done. They may not be the largest issues that face the country, but ones that could create some momentum to really bring uh, Republicans and Democrats together. Well, I've always thought that the, the, the low-hanging fruit in terms of the intersection, which is what you're kind of getting at, good policy and, and kind of good bipartisan politics, is infrastructure. And I just think that uh, we all know the statistics. We all know how we've underinvested in infrastructure. Some of that's overstated and some of it's understated. I mean, you know, we probably, I mean, I traveled around the country. The roads and bridges are actually not actually that terrible in this country. But what is terrible is the fact we don't have rural broadband or that people are drinking polluted water, right? Or we don't have a modern grid and we have these power outages. Um, so, you know, a massive infrastructure program that's a little de-linked from the old Department of Transportation headset, almost like there should be an infrastructure czar, for lack of a better word, who's thinking about all the infrastructure, food groups, you know, communications, water, energy, and transportation. You know, I think there's an opportunity for real bipartisanship around that. 
Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's good policy. I think it'll have a good long-term return on investment and I think it'll create jobs. I think the other area where I think there's opportunity for bipartisan support is expanding the earned income tax credit. I mean, if there's one thing I would do to help workers overnight, it would be that. Uh, it, you know, Republic, it was originally a Republican idea because it, uh, it creates a strong incentive to work. So it's not like UBI or any of this other stuff, which I think is kind of nonsense. Um, you know, it's tied to work. It's tied to the dignity of work and the importance of work. But we all know that the, the wage story in this country has been really tough. And it's hard in the, I mean, I'm all for raising the minimum wage and we should do it, but it's gotta be phased in in a way that's sensitive to local communities. It's hard when unemployment is the way it is now and so many small businesses are struggling just to you know, push up the minimum wage really high. But what's not hard to do is expand the earned income tax credit. I know it costs money, but no one loses their job when you expand the earned income tax credit. And you actually, so those would be, if I were advising the, the, the vice president, hopefully president, on two areas of economic policy, and I think you can tie climate into infrastructure really well, because there's just a lot of resiliency and things you can do uh, with infrastructure to really make it a big infrastructure bill, but also a big climate bill. So I think you could deal with the, the desire of the party to do climate stuff in infrastructure, I think you can create jobs with infrastructure. And then I think you can help workers with the earned income tax credit. And those things are gonna cost money and we're gonna to have to find ways of paying for some of it, probably not all of it, but those would be my two. If, if, I, you know, if I could give them a hard pitch, those are the things. And you know, probably the third thing I would do is it's clear that we've allowed too many critical materials, capabilities, uh, minerals even, uh, to be offshore. And you all know how that happened, you know, like there's so many of these pharmaceutical components that are now sole sourced in China. And, you know, probably in 2004, someone who ran sourcing at a big pharmaceutical company could make their budget by moving the product overseas, even though it only changed the price of the drug by one-tenth of one percent. Right, but those incentives obviously exist in a capitalistic system, which I support. But every once in a while, we got to put our thumb on the scale. And I, I haven't worked with the vice president on this notion of we need it in America. We used to do this during the Cold War, where we identify critical materials, supplies, and I think raw materials and minerals have to be in that list, where we actually have a strategy to ensure that there's some production of that in the United States of America. It doesn't have to be exclusively made in the US, but through a combination of carrots and sticks, you actually reshore an identified list of probably a hundred supplies, products, and um, raw materials that we need to make here. Those would be my three big economic policy things. Thanks, John. And by the way, thank you for shaking our uh, granddaughter's hand in uh, Ames, Iowa. Uh, <laughs> I was I was happy to meet her, just like I was happy to meet all those Iowans. So Ames is a nice town. It is. She's washed it since then, though, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jim Bernstein, you're next. Um, John, my question is this: um, I'm I'm a business owner, and I interview candidates for jobs. And as I looked at the debate stage, your resume would have been the first one that I would have interviewed, and yet you didn't get a lot of traction in your campaign. 
I found that very frustrating. And I wonder um, if you could comment on your frustration and how you might change the process so that a candidate like you could have gotten more deserved traction in that process. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very, very frustrating. You know, I think um, timing is everything in life, as we all know, and you, I'm sure you've had that experience in your business. Uh, I know I've had it in my business career. Timing really is important. And if the timing's wrong, there's really, you know, it's very, I mean, you can have a better spot on the beach, but when the tsunami comes, you, you all get washed out. And the, the problem that I had, what, what I miscalculated was the reaction to Donald Trump, I thought would be that the Democratic Party would want someone who could capture the center. Because to me, that was obvious in terms of how you beat him. And that, you know, hopefully he would rid us of, of some extremism. And I think the party ultimately got there, right, with Joe Biden. But I think there was a period of time where the anger uh, to, to, to Trump's existence, like that's the best way I can put it, the, his existence created so much anger in the Democratic Party that they didn't want to hear anyone talking about working with Republicans. Even if I didn't say working with Republicans, because even, even I'm smart enough not to, to, to lead with that in a Democratic primary, but just saying bipartisan, you know, just talking about the center, that implied some kind of a weak moderation sellout. And that, you know, what we need is bold ideas. I mean, I gave a speech in California to the California Democratic Convention. And I said that I thought Medicare for all was not only bad policy, but bad politics. And the thing that was interesting, and this, you know, the, the, not to dwell on this, but of the 25 people that ran for president, only three people put out a universal health care plan. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and John Delaney. Like my healthcare plan, unlike the other folks who had like public options and all this other stuff, which I'm totally fine with, I actually said we should have universal care. Everyone should get a plan, a basic plan from the government as a right of citizenship. And then you can opt out, you don't want it, get a tax credit and use the tax credit to buy your own private insurance. So we know everyone would be covered, but people would have the freedom. So normally you'd say, okay, 25 people ran for president, three people have universal health care, Delaney, Sanders, and Warren, and everyone else is some kind of fix the Affordable Care Act. So I stood in front of the California convention and said, listen, I think Medicare for all is bad policy and bad politics. And they literally booed me nonstop for five or 10 minutes. Yet I was one of the most progressive people on health care policy. And it showed that there wasn't really any, the facts, no one wanted to get bogged down in the facts. It was all about personality. It was all about, are you going to fight, right? Are you going to go there and you're going to stick it to those Republicans? That's what we're looking for. Remember Michael Avenatti? I remember speaking in Iowa at, at uh, this event. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, you know, it's one of their big annual events. And uh, it was me. It was Tim Ryan was speaking and uh, Steve Bullock was speaking. Um, I think. 
John Hickenlooper was speaking. But the headliner was Michael Avenatti. And, uh, and the whole crowd was there for him. You know, and it was just like, you walk away saying, you know, the, 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 sometimes there's trends that are so powerful, you, you know, you just can't fight it. Now, fortunately, the party came around and we got Vice President Biden, who I think embodies a lot of the things that, uh, you know, my approach to this. So I'm happy with where we ended. Obviously, I, I wish it would have been me. But, uh, you know, I feel like on healthcare and a couple other issues, I've made a difference in the debate. To some extent, I took a big bullet on this Medicare for all thing. And I think I did change the conversation on that. And then the party started. And then suddenly there were all kinds of stories about, you know, what people really thought about Medicare for all and how the American people thought about making their private insurance illegal, meaning they hate that. So, but that's kind of how I think about it. Great. Uh, next up, Mike, Mike, Mike Precop. Um, hey, thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I don't think I've heard so many ideas from one person with so much comment that I appreciate, John. The, the other thing is, you know, listening to you and your talk about, you know, in front of the California Democrat uh, convention is refreshing in that you had your ideas, um, but it leads me to my real question, and this may sound kind of hard. I'm just curious how members of, of the Senate and the Congress really value constituent input. And the reason I say that is you see trends and you develop an issue and then you'll develop your side and then you develop an argument. And then it becomes these days an argument between parties. And you gotta, you gotta figure out a way to win. And at that point, it seems to me that any constituent input is no longer there. And I wonder if you see that same thing and if you think the system doesn't work to gather constituent input. Um, when, when you say constituent input, you mean feedback from your voters. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just want to make sure we're sitting. We're sitting oh, sitting. I'm sorry. Sure. You know, I, 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 not, not, not when there's a bill. It's too late when it's a bill. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I can't speak for the Senate, but what I will say is, I think the House is much better connected to their constituents than most elected officials, and I was actually quite impressed with how often House members voted with what they believed their constituents were. And let me explain what I mean by that, because if you're in a very heavy Democratic district, or if you're in a heavy Republican district, you really view your constituents, people in your party, because your only election issue is your primary. And that's one of the problems problems with the gerrymandered system we have, which is it creates too many safe districts and it encourages those people to ignore half the, you know, half the country. And, but members from competitive districts really, I think, do an extraordinary job actually trying to represent their constituents uh, because it's their only way, I, I, you know, I, whether it's out of the, the serving for the right reason, which is the reason I served and what I think everyone should do. And if you serve for the right reason, you should try to represent everyone. Or if it's just out of political survival, they actually do a good job. And again, there's these correlations, right? The more famous you become in the house, the more you become de-linked from your constituents. 
right? Which is why when those people actually often get in competitive races, they lose, right? But most of the people who become more famous in the house are in safe districts because that allows them to be extreme and get media attention. Whereas I could rattle off so many members of the house whose names you probably have never heard of who keep their heads down and actually work on their constituent services. And no one ever knows who they are because the work they do is boring and tied to local issues, uh, oftentimes bipartisan, uh, and, but they get no attention. Your comment about famous members and how that works is very understandable. Thank you for that. We have a terrible incentive system, which is really the problem, right? The incentives are to be extreme because that's what's rewarded in the media, both the social and even the cable news media cycle. And people who are vulnerable can't afford to play that game and they become very productive. The people who can play that game are the people that, you know, as Nancy Pelosi once said, if you put up a glass of water, comma, D, you know, that person's going to, the Democrat's going to win the district or vice versa, the Republican. Uh, next up, Hapstein. Thank you, Bill. Uh, thank you, Congressman Delaney, for your commonsensical problem-solving approach. Uh, you don't need to answer this question, but I think one of the key uh, key challenges is is how do we make uh, problem-solving and bipartisanship cool again? Right. So my question is, I think- I certainly, I'm certainly not an expert at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I failed that test. <laughs> That's- that's Nancy's and Bill's uh, mandate. But any, but in any event, my question is, I think Tim Sloan asked the question about what are the things that should happen? But my concern is, is, and this happens with any administration coming in, and hopefully the polls continue to hold where, uh, uh, where, where Vice President Biden becomes President Biden. But it does appear to me uh, that um, there's some issues there. And the question is, is, is how do the problem solvers and the moderate Democrats do a better job than the problem solvers and the moderate Republicans did of stopping the excesses of the, of the Biden agenda? I mean, for instance, just real quick, uh, there's $7 trillion uh, worth of uh, his policy agenda and $3 trillion worth of, uh, worth of additional taxes. And that, they both appear to me to be more than a bit excessive. So that's my question. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so if, if we just look at probabilities, the highest, the most likely outcome of all the various scenarios is that Biden wins, which obviously is what I want to have happen, and that the Democrats take the Senate by a small margin. Of all the various outcomes, that is, I think, the highest probability at this Great. point. So then what happens is the moderate Democrats in the center in the Senate become extraordinarily important in shaping the policy agenda of the United States. Because if the Democrats have 51 senators, you know, Joe Manchin is going to have something to say about what gets through the Senate. You know, as will, you know, uh, Steve Bullock, if he wins in Montana, 
or as will, you know, Michael Bennett. So I think what's really important is for people, and those people are going to be under enormous pressure because the people who want a more, uh, let's put it this way, a, a less pragmatic agenda on the Democratic Party, they're going to turn their attention from Republicans who will have lost everything to those moderate senators. And if they get in the way of what they view as progress, they're going to become the villains. I don't mean to say it that stark, but that's what I think will happen, right? Because now Trump is the Trump is obviously the the uber villain, deservedly so, in my opinion. Uh, and then his Republicans who support him are right behind in the eyes of kind of a lot of Democratic voters. When Trump, if, when Joe Biden is the president and Democrats control the House and they control the Senate by a small margin, to the extent a couple of more moderate Democrats want to shape an agenda that's a little more practical, you know, like a public option as opposed to making private health insurance illegal, they're going to come under a lot of pressure from certain people in the Democrat, from the left of the Democratic Party. So I think it's incredibly important that organizations and people around the country support them and support where they're coming from. Because I think those senators, which I could rattle off their names, I think they all have goals and values that are completely consistent with the Democratic Party. But sometimes they fail these crazy purity tests that we establish for them. And so that's where I have where I think the action is. Making sure those senators, which, you know, Senator Sinema from Arizona, who's a good friend of mine, who's fantastic, you know, making sure those people are supported um, in, in the obvious ways, but also just the people are out there putting forth an agenda that makes sense that, you know, Democrats can really get behind. That's why I talk about things like infrastructure and earned income tax credit. That's the kind of stuff that Democrats can get behind. They can get some Republicans behind it. And that's the kind of stuff that can get done. Thank you. John, a brief editorial comment. I think you'll be pleased to hear that No Labels has already gone some way down that path. Good. Uh, you know, and under Nancy's leadership, uh, a gang of eight has been put together in the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, four Democrats, four Republicans. Uh, we hope to expand it. And in the meantime, uh, we are giving both moral and material assistance to exactly the kinds of people you're talking about. Uh, and we plan, to, we plan to do more of it because your logic is impeccable. That's where the action is gonna be, uh, uh, assuming that things work out according to what you correctly labeled the most probable scenario. Okay, end of editorial comment. Uh, and on to the next question from Richard Cashnow. Thank you. And uh, thank you, John. Um, you've partially addressed this in a recent answer, but I wanna broaden the question a little bit. You began by expressing a lot of optimism uh, about uh, what I would say might be a centrist leadership uh, from Joe Biden. Uh, and I certainly uh, hope that turns out to be the case, but I worry uh, based on a lot that we've seen. Um, and I may not be right about this, but my understanding is that uh, once he secured the nomination uh, uh, from his 
you know, position as, as more of a moderate than the others uh, in an attempt to uh, unify the party. Uh, he has adopted, at least nominally, a lot of more extreme positions that were being proposed by, um, by Sanders, for example. Uh, and I worry uh, that um, the Joe Biden that we might see uh, with this distribution of pressure in his party, uh, and frankly, given uh, his age, uh, may not be uh, the centrist that we associate with that name from earlier times. And so I would love to hear a little more from you that could buttress uh, optimism about, um, about moderation in, in that agenda going forward. Because I know there are a lot of people, uh, myself among them, who feel that uh, right now either choice uh, doesn't lead directly to a path that uh, no labels would like to see. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, even if you assume, let's go with your, the, the premise, which I'm, I couldn't tell from your comments whether you believe it or not, but it sounds like more of a concern. The premise that maybe Biden is not the bipartisan Biden that he used to be, which, which I think he still is, by the way, because the reason I think that is I think he takes great, enormous pride in that aspect of his career. Uh, and, you know, it's like anything, it's like all of us as human beings, if there's, if you associate yourself personally with something, it's very, it's very hard to, to change that orientation. And Joe Biden does associate himself with a Congress that used to work. He tells stories in small gatherings about when he first came to the Senate after he had lost his wife and his, his child. And he was the young, you know, he'd just gotten sworn in and he had just had that terrible accident. And he didn't think that, uh, that uh, he would be able to stay in the Senate because how could he? Because he had these young kids in Wilmington and he was going to be in Washington. He tells a story about how a Democrat and Republican Senate, two, two leaders, the Democrat and Republican uh, senators, came up with this project for Joe Biden and they told him it was incredibly important. It was mission critical for the country and he was the only person with the bandwidth to do it. And he needed to spend all his time for several weeks on this project and report back to them. And he couldn't even think about leaving the Senate until he did this for the country. And he went off and did it. And they realized about four or six weeks into it that it was a totally made up project. That they just came up with this idea to give him this work because they wanted to preoccupy him so he wouldn't immediately decide to leave the Senate and they would have time to make the decision. And he takes great pride in the fact that a Democrat and Republican came together to, to do this for him. So he talks a lot about these things and they animate him when he talks about them in a way that you can tell he longs for that again. So I think that is his true North, but let's assume I'm wrong, right? I think this is where you go back to what I talked about and what Bill talked about, which is, you know, that Wayne Gretzky line, you skate to where the puck's going. So I think where the puck's going here is Biden wins, Democrats keep the House, and Democrats win by a small margin in the Senate. Those eight senators that, that Bill just said they've got together will arguably have as much control, if not more, on the Biden agenda as Joe Biden will. And that's the Madisonian democracy that we have, right, at work. And so... You know, that's 
how I would really think about it, which is, I think, you know, as a threshold matter, I don't think he's changed. But even if he has, or even if he can be pushed on certain things, I think there's going to be that sausage making that's going to go on the Senate for anything to happen. John, quick follow up on that question, though. Um, if if the Democrats are committed to eliminate the filibuster, how does right. that change that dynamic? Well, I do think that's uh, I do think that the filibuster's uh, uh, life expectancy at this point is very short. Uh, and I think that uh, there's a decent remember the filibuster is changed not by Joe Biden it's changed by the senators and I think that um, if I were speculating a wholesale change to the filibuster I don't think that's a high probability but like if Joe Biden tries to do an infrastructure program and he doesn't get any bipartisan support and it gets blocked I think there'll be changes Right. And I'm not entirely against some of that stuff. Right. Because at some point we got to do these things. The cost of doing nothing is not nothing. You know, I'm not for throwing the whole thing out. But at some point, you know, and that's where the ball is going to be in the Republicans court, which is do they you know, you would I would counsel them not that they would listen to me for a split second, but I would counsel them to try to be reasonable on a couple of things. Otherwise, the filibuster is a risk. Okay, let me just tell you where we stand. Uh, we have 14 minutes to go and three questions in the queue. Uh, mm -hmm. You can all do the math. Uh, next one up, Steve Pruitt. John, thanks for taking the time, Congressman, to join us. Um, you were my favorite on the debate stage, but of course you're a businessman and so am I, so I could relate to your position and thank you for uh, putting yourself through that. You have so much to offer our country and continued service. What are you doing these days and what are your plans for the future if you're able to share those with us with well, regard to public service? Yeah, so listen, I'm, I'm helping the Biden campaign as much as I can. I wish I could do more, quite frankly. Uh, it's a very different campaign for all the obvious reasons. And so, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'd always thought of my life as kind of a third learning, a third earning and a third serving. So I'd like to continue to do public service. You know, does that mean I'll do it right away next year uh, or will it come back in a couple of years? I don't know. But uh, right now I'm just, you know, I'm trying, I'm helping him. I'm kind of reconnecting with my four daughters and my family after these last several years. Uh, I'm actually at the beach now. So <laughs> get a little relaxation in uh, and, uh, you know, not being too, uh, too firm about things. Great. Well, I applaud you for taking the downtime to reconnect with your family. You don't get many chances to do that. Good luck sure. to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay, Glenn Lowenstein. Thank you, Congressman, for joining us. Um, so when I think about the, the, the work we're doing here, I think about leadership. And in that context, um, can you define the difference between a politician and a business person? Well, as it relates to leadership, uh, it should be the same, uh, you know, theoretically, right? You should lead with integrity uh, and honesty and character, and you should try to seek the, you know, as Bill said, the right answer wherever it may reside. And you should be fact-based and data-based and have some positive vision for the future. 
and you should roll up your sleeves and be willing to do the work. You know, those, those are all things that I thought about myself as a business leader, and I tried to conduct myself in the same way in politics. You know, the difference is politics, you have many more stakeholders. I mean, I always thought, e even though under, I ran two public companies that I started and under Delaware law, your obligations are to your shareholders, but you realize when you run a company, you've got broader obligations. You've got obligations to your clients, you've got obligations to your employees, you have obligations to your communities and your shareholders. But those four stakeholders, you can kind of, you can, you can get it on, a, on a, a single piece of paper much easier. In politics, you got so many stakeholders and people are passionate about so many issues. And there's so many people out there, you know, because of their own personal situations, like the woman I talked about who I met who had this disabled child, right? Her issue, her sole issue was how Medicaid pays for people with disability. She spent her whole life advocating for that. That was her issue. And you go down the list, you got all these issues. So in politics, you, you've got to do a much better job at both having, you know, really understanding all your stakeholders and, and this is where being a business person gets you into trouble. You, you've got to be not as quick with the analytical right answer because the analytical right answer may actually be the right answer, but like every decision, there's trade-offs. And in business, you can lay out the trade-offs very clearly. This is the positive, this is the negative, on balance, we're going to do it. Problem with politics is, you know, you make policy decisions, there's positive and negatives and there's trade-offs and that all sounds good, but the negatives are human beings and their worries and their concerns, their ambitions or their anxieties. Uh, and you just, you, 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 you gotta, and this was the hard part I had about politics and I still have it, which is I try to get to the right answer. Yeah. And you gotta have a sensitivity to this stuff uh, that is just at a whole different level than, you know, and that's where like someone like Bill Clinton was such a master, right? He knew this stuff, but the empathy that came from him when he would make these trade-off decisions in his head was so obvious and you'd feel it, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Sure. Okay. Uh, last on my list, Brett Studner. Brett? Um, Congressman, thank you for being on the call today. Um, my question is in regards to the, uh, the Iran deal and where you think that um, um, when Vice President Biden is elected, um, that um, what he will what he will do with the um, with the deal and what the overall party stance is on it. I, a little commentary, if I if I may, um, is that it, it's now known that the deal was was struck with some mis misinformation. Um, yeah. And my concern is that he is going to reinstitute the deal um, as it is or close to where it is. Yeah. What are your thoughts? So listen, the deal was far from perfect. Uh, you don't cut a deal with the Iranians and seven other countries and have a perfect deal. I voted for the deal, but had significant misgivings uh, about it. Uh, I think it would be a missed opportunity to not get back in the deal with better terms. That's my opinion, which is I think we should have a deal. I think there are a couple of uh, things about the deal that I had significant concerns about mostly the duration of the deal. I thought it was too short of a deal. 
you know, none of us know what the next cast of characters running around is going to be like. But the problem with this deal is this deal would have expired and these people would still be in power. I at least wanted a deal that would expire after the current uh, regime was was clearly gone. So at least we'd have an option of having better people. Uh, so I think there's some things that, you know, and I think there'll be there'd be a lot of support in the global community for the United States to get back in the deal. And I think if the United States showed the good faith to get back in the deal, uh, I think some of our allies would go to bat to make the deal better with us. And there'd be an opportunity to get back in the deal with some better terms. Glenn, before I turn uh, the floor over to Glenn Lowenstein to close us out, we have a couple of minutes. So I'm gonna take the moderator's prerogative and put the last question to you. Uh, let me just give you an analogy. You know, a guy is rushed to the hospital, okay? And there are two problems. Problem one, he's morbidly obese. Problem number two, he's suffering from serious internal bleeding. And the doctor looks at the guy and says, you know, I'd really like to put this guy on a diet and get him in shape. But the first thing we have to do is stop the bleeding. And that turns out, that turns out to be really demanding. Okay, I think you can guess where I'm going with this. Joe Biden, let us say, shows up in the White House on January 20th. And there are an enormous number of things that we need, he will need to do to address the, what you call the accelerating parts of our economy and, and society. And your list, I thought was a very, very good point of departure. But we have high unemployment. We have states that are going broke because of, of revenue losses. We have people who are getting evicted from their homes. I could go on. That's not an unrealistic picture of what a President Biden would face on January 20th. And so he thinks realistically, well, the first thing I have to do is stop the bleeding. The problem is that stopping the bleeding take, is a political heavy lift and it's expensive at a time when we're already running a $3 trillion annual budget deficit. So your President Biden, he comes to you for advice. John, what the bleep should I do? What do you tell him? Well, I think he's got to do things that move the needle the most in the short term and have the opportunity to not be as political. So the intersection of those things is where I would go. And you know, in many ways in the first stimulus package, the sending the checks to the American people was kind of that, right? It moved the needle a lot. And it wasn't actually particularly political. It had pretty good support on both sides of the aisle. So, you know. Yeah, okay. But, you know, just to, just to press you a little bit for the last minute I have, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the evictions that are lined yeah. up, once the, one, once the moratorium disappears, if you look, if you look at the budget cuts, that all the states are now beginning, which as we know from 2009, 2010, has the effect of prolonging the downturn and slowing the recovery. 
we're talking about huge amounts of money mm -hmm. right off the bat, money that we don't have. Well, the, the we don't have issue is, I think, a question, right? Like, I, I think the United States of America is in a financial position both now and in the future to continue to pay our debts, right? We are the ultimate great credit in the world. Right. If you look at the cost of money right now, it's basically free. So I would probably argue the cost of doing nothing is higher than the cost of spending the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it has to be, it's going to cost us, you know, it's going to cost us significant amounts of money. We all know that. But I think the cost of, of not doing anything is much higher, in my opinion. Okay. Well, but I think you got to do things that are not as political. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? You can't, like, the, Obama's stimulus plan when he became president, which was $900 billion, seems like small change, doesn't it? You know, it was only 15% infrastructure, for example, which is, was a huge waste. We would have been better off spending two billion, two trillion, and having a trillion and a half of it be infrastructure, than spending 900 billion and a bunch of it being like low ROI pet projects. You see what I mean? Yep. So I would look at stuff that really moves the needle uh, and is substantive and can get some bipartisan support. And I wouldn't worry as much about how I'm going to pay for it in that first. I mean, it depends. You know, it all depends on what the economy looks like in January. But, you know, there's another couple trillion dollars that are going to have to be spent, in my opinion. And it's not clear it's going to happen before the election. Yep. Oh, with that, over to you, Glenn. Thank you, Bill. Um, and Congressman, I think a lot of us got to know you for the first time on TV. And as Steve... Um, and Jimbo said, I think a lot of us respected you quite a bit because we put ourselves in your shoes. There's a lot of business people on the phone wondering, wow, could I be on that stage? So I think all of us are grateful for your effort. And we got to know you better on this call today. And what you are saying is music to our ears. As awful as the current crisis is, John Delaney believes it will produce positive developments even if they require painful changes in the process. He believes that the impact that no labels can cultivate, especially on economic and healthcare policies, is vital to that transition. Among the changes he envisions are the digitization of many common practices, internet commerce, and the rise of telehealth, which he says had previously been prevented by what he claims are unnecessary regulations. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.